0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Bible Breakdown. Very excited to be back in numbers with you this week. Uh, Last week, we got to the unfortunate episode where the Israelites are sent to spy out the promised land, come back. They're not feeling really good about how it's going to go. So then they're forced to wander for 40 years. Very unfortunate. That happens in numbers 13 and 14. And now we are fast forwarding a little bit. Up to Numbers 20, where we are going to see another unfortunate event in the history of the people in the wilderness, as if the wilderness wasn't bad enough. They're going to kind of make it worse for themselves. Specifically, no, I won't give that away. You have to wait. Okay, we are in Numbers 20, though. And uh, before we get started with Numbers 20, just a little bit of what happens between chapter 14 and what happens in chapter 20. Um, so again, the the spies went and they looked at the promised land and they were afraid of the people that were there and they said, "Nope, we can't handle this." Only Joshua and Caleb of the of the twelve that were sent out believed that God could do it, believed that God could deliver them and give them the land. Um, so because of that, God punishes that generation of Israelites with forty years of wandering in the wilderness. And after that, there's a, a rebellion among the people led by a guy named Korah. You may have heard of this story before, but basically he and the people who followed him challenged the leadership of Moses and Aaron, basically asking what gives you the right to be the ones who tell us what to do. That was not a good choice by Korah and his followers. So in a show of judgment, God actually has them swallowed up into the ground. So think some massive sinkhole kind of situation. Pretty awesome way to show judgment, in my opinion. But uh, then afterwards, there's still just a little, maybe, maybe there's still a few murmurs of wondering why Moses and Aaron, why are they the ones who are in charge? Um, God does another uh, miracle in which he basically has uh, these staffs collected or staves, if you're feeling really fun with your words, they're collected. um, And then he says, whoever the staff belongs to, he's, mm, let me try again. He's going to make one of the staffs, Bud, and whoever's staff that is, is the one who is God's anointed. They take Aaron's staff and then a bunch of the leaders of the other tribes. And guess what? It's Aaron's, that Bud's. So again, that is used to uh, reinforce that Aaron, along with Moses, uh, are God's anointed, God's chosen. And they actually end up putting that staff in the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder to those who would dare to question who God's chosen leaders are. So it's remind a reminder for a long time because they have the Ark for a long time in there. They also put some of the manna and the Ten Commandments. So some very important parts of the life of Israel, not just while they're in the wilderness, but even going forward. And that's one of the things that goes in there. So that's kind of what's been happening before we get to chapter 20. And in chapter 20, we have another major event in the history of Israel. So starting in verse 1, chapter 20 of Numbers says this, and the people of Israel, the whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Okay, so the people are returning to the place where they had originally sent the spies out to spy out the promised land. So this is a return to this area. Most Uh, scholars believe this is actually kind of right toward the end of that 40 years of wandering okay so the reason they're coming back and also the reason that it's mentioned as the first month is that they believe that this is a kind of a culmination of those 40 years so the first month basically being uh, 40 years to the time that they left egypt so that first month they left egypt So that's kind of where we're at. So we kind of get a pretty good fast forward um, through some of that time of wandering though. There's going to be some stuff that happens after this. So we know it's not just right, right. As they're going to enter the promised land, but um, it's not at the beginning, not somewhere in the middle. Most people believe this is somewhere toward the end. So uh, that I think helps us to understand the significance of the story. So uh, that's one thing that is happening here. And then of course, um, we see that Miriam uh, dies here at this time. That is the sister of Moses, and so she doesn't get to enter the Promised Land. Um, something to remember too that you know this is kind of hap- this is the background of what happens in this event. But yes, yeah, so this is kind of toward the end of the forty years. Um, at the end of chapter or in chapter twenty-six, they're going to take this second census that gives the Book of Numbers its name. There's one at the beginning, one at the end. Another reason to believe this is probably right toward the end of the 40 years. Um, But Moses' sister, unfortunately, dies and is buried there in Kadesh. Um, And then, surprise, surprise, we're going to get some complaining. Wouldn't be a day in the Old Testament with the Israelites if there weren't some complaining. So down in verse 2, going through verse 5, it says this, Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. So there's no water, and instead of the people being like, hey, Moses, we know that God is our provider. He always takes care of us. Would you mind just asking him about the water situation? No, instead, we get this very kind of aggressive language. They gather against Moses. They gather against Aaron. They quarrel with Moses. They are complaining. They are grumbling. They are quarreling. They are gathering against, as unfortunately has become very typical of them, even in the face of of many provisions of God. And they, they, the first thing, this is a new one. They have a new event they can lament about. They lament that they didn't die in the rebellion with the previous peoples. They're basically saying, Oh, if only we had been swallowed up by the earth, which of course is ridiculous, but that's I guess how thirsty they're feeling and how hopeless they're feeling. They wish they'd been swallowed up by the earth. And then of course, It's been 40 years, but they still haven't forgotten about Egypt. Oh, what wonderful days in Egypt when we were enslaved, but at least we could eat and drink. And so they are still lamenting that Moses brought them up out of Egypt, even all this time later. And referring to this as an evil place, even though they're right on the border of their promised land. Oh, it hurts. And you have to think that this is starting to make Moses and Aaron pretty mad. But what we see in verse six, actually a pretty good response. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. So Moses and Aaron are acting in uh, kindness, uh, faithfulness, humility, and they go before the Lord. So this idea that they're falling on their faces is a recognition of who God is, who they are. So this is a sign of humility to say we don't deserve to hold our faces up before the presence of the Lord at the tent of meeting. Instead we are they're uh, portraying themselves as servants, which they are doing rightly. And so this is kind of typical of how they would approach the Lord during these difficult times. So this is this is the good the good action, the positive, the faithful action of Moses and Aaron here, going before the Lord to ask that he provide again for the people. And so in verses 7 through 9, we get some instructions. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. So we've got God giving some instructions on how he's going to provide water for the people. He's going to provide water from a rock again, like he did once in uh, back in Exodus. Exodus 6, 17 is when um, he has Moses strike a rock and it gives forth its water. This time, though, one difference. Moses is supposed to take the staff. Yes, this is probably the same staff that he struck the rock with back in Exodus, but he's just supposed to tell the rock to give water rather than strike it like he did in Exodus. So... He's basically, hey, go tell the rock to give forth some water. So the people get to have their water, obviously, and then God gets to, again, show himself as their provider, show this miracle, and to be given glory. But plays out a little differently than that. Verse 10, Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them says, these are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Meribah is a word that means quarrel, which is why it's named that, and why you get that little editorial note there. And then it says that even through this, that God showed himself holy. So, one thing happens as it was intended. God is shown as holy, which he is, and as was intended from this whole Incident to be shown, however, Moses and Aaron acted in disobedience to what God had said. And we're going to talk a little bit about why that is and what he did and why it's serious and all these kind of things that we'll talk about. But initially what we see, Moses acts out um, in anger and he strikes the rock twice instead of telling the rock to give forth water. So he strikes the rock twice. That's kind of his angry action. And he was not only is it disobedient, but we see, you can tell from what he's saying, the anger that he has toward the people. And then there's also a couple of, of clues that we have that this was done kind of in uh, rebellion to God. So um, he calls the people rebels, um, which is the irony is they kind of are a little bit, but here he's the one who's actually rebelling against God's command. So there's an irony there. And then uh, I think we talked about it when we talked about the uh, sacrificial system, but there are, we talked about the unintentional sins versus the sins of a high hand. So sins of a high hand are ones that are done blatantly in rebellion against God, whereas unintentional, quote unquote, air quotes around unintentional, it's kind of just a sin that is rooted in human frailty. Um, So you know, treating somebody unkindly, acting out in anger, um, being careless with your words, and maybe using the Lord's name in vain. Um, we even see the Lord kind of refer to these. Uh, we even see him show mercy on people who worshipped idols. So that's the kind of the unintentional sins. Again, air quotes, not like they didn't purposefully do it, but rather that it's not purposely done in rebellion against God. Those are what we call the high-handed sins, and uh i think the where the reason i bring that up the irony here is right as moses strikes the rock was it say moses lifted up his hand so he literally has high hands while he is high-handedly acting in rebellion against god and i think that uh it's fair to at least uh, i'm not going to say definitely this can was considered a high-handed sin Uh, but based on the punishment that he's given, I think there's good reason to at least think it's possible that this was considered a a high-handed or rebellious act against God. Um, and in the face of God. So, but there is that kind of irony that he lifted up his hand and that's when he strikes the rock twice. And that is his sin there. So this kind of reminds me a little bit, it's so unfortunate because Moses He had a rocky start, you know, Before, um, no pun intended there. I'm sorry. I apologize. He had a tough start because, you know, he killed that Egyptian and he runs off to the wilderness and he's gone for a long time. You know, it's not like he was a perfect guy, but we do see him. And then, you know, when God calls him, he's like really reluctant and tries to make all these excuses. But then we see Moses just as this. I almost said as a rock, I'm I'm really not trying to do this. This is not on purpose. He was this stalwart, we'll say, of faithfulness and obedience to the Lord throughout most of Exodus and um, through a lot of the stories in Numbers. Leviticus doesn't have too many stories, but he's also giving this law and showing himself faithful and going up to the mountain to meet with God and helping the people and being the mediator between the people and God. So we see him doing a lot of good things and then this is just like this is just his breaking point. And I know the rock broke. It's I'm just okay. But it makes me think of if you've seen the movie The Dark Knight. It makes me think of Harvey Dent. You know, Harvey Dent goes through the first half of the movie and you know, he's this like antithesis of Batman. He's public, he's in the light, he's justice and all this kind of stuff and then Harvey Dent has this tough time where He's very upset about, I hope you've seen it, about Rachel dying. And uh, his face gets burned, and then he turns into this character, Two Face. And he actually even, it's actually before this, but he says this quote He says, You either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And that's kind of Harvey's story, which is the irony. But this kind of, it's almost kind of like Moses' story, too. He goes through all this time, and he's the the perfect example of what it means to be faithful to God. But even here we see him break and he chooses to act in anger and disobedience. So God in response to this, he punishes Moses and Aaron. So it, you know, they're both there. I think we can assume from this, that's a sign that Aaron was complicit in this, uh, in this disobedience and that he was at least convinced by, Moses to I don't know follow in that same vein you know we don't get a a super long fleshed out narrative of that part but um the punishment for them both is not allowing them to enter the promised land side note do we really think Aaron was going to get into the promised land before this like remember he took everybody's jewelry and made a golden calf I don't know that would have been really nice of God to let him into the promised land after some of the some of the ways that Aaron let people walk all over him while Moses was up on the mountain but anyway we know for sure at this point that he is not going to he and Moses Aaron and Moses are not bringing the people of Israel into the land that being the promised land so uh, this incident that I think on the surface I think that I always view this as man this doesn't seem like that big a deal like I know he was disobedient but he did all these really good things and this seems like a minor disobedience, not like a big one. And that's my perspective, obviously, not the perspective of scripture. And so therefore it requires some more digging. So if we know that this punishment is severe and it is not unfair, that God is not punishing unfairly, then it gives us cause. Well, okay, let's kind of look at what Moses did and why this was such a big deal. So I've actually got four ways in which this sin reflects very poorly on what Moses chose to do so the first that we see and I think this one's the obvious one is he acted out of anger so we know that uh, acting out of anger is sinful Jesus is going to talk about equating this to to murder in terms of making one liable for judgment in Matthew 5 he says I say that anyone who is even angry with his brother is liable to judgment Um, And then we also see Paul says in Ephesians 4, he exhorts the Ephesian church, be angry, kind of this acknowledgement that anger is a a natural emotion, he says, but do not sin. So that there is this middle ground in which we can experience the emotion of anger, but not sin in the midst of it. So what unfortunately we see with Moses here is that he experienced the emotion and he chose to act out of that emotion. Okay, so that's the first thing. Pretty pretty clear. Yeah, he's angry. Um, something that kind of, I think, flies under the radar is this. He actually, in what he says, he kind of implies that he and Aaron are actually the ones who are providing the water. Let's look back at what he says in verse 10. Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? So it's kind of this, I'm turning the attention toward me and Aaron. He doesn't mention that God is the one who is ultimately providing this water, but rather shall we, shall me and Aaron bring water for you out of this rock. So in this, we also see that Moses is exhibiting some pride to uh, view himself, not as a, the chosen of the Lord and messenger of the Lord, um, a person acting on behalf of what the Lord is doing but instead him being the provider himself. So this one's subtle, but obviously very meaningful for him to put himself in the place of God as the one who is providing and taking that status as the one God is using as a a tool to help the people and taking it from that and making it where he's the one who's actually providing. So that's the second one. You're like, okay, the case is building against Moses. Third thing, he did not exhibit faith in what he did. And this is actually what God says directly to Moses and Aaron says, because you did not believe in me. So what God is saying is this act was not just an act of anger, nor even of pride, but also a, an act of faithlessness. You did not believe in me. So by not doing what God said, They basically said, you know, actually, God, I think we know better what we should do here. I think that if I get really upset and I strike the rock, then uh, that's going to be better than if I am calm and I speak to the rock and you do what you say you're going to do. But instead, I mean, you can think about it. If Moses speaks to the rock, he doesn't touch the rock, uh, water starts coming out. I think that they probably knew enough about water and its nature that like, oh, you can't talk to a rock and normally get water out of it. But, you know, there are places where you could strike something and water might come out. I mean, you strike a coconut and a little coconut water is going to come out, right? If you're like right on top of some aquifer, which yeah, maybe some some people think maybe this area was like an aquifer. And that's, you know, an area that happened to have a lot of water and then God miraculously made it come up. That's neither here nor there. But I think there's still a noticeable difference between if I speak to the rock uh, and water starts coming out of it, I can recognize, okay, this is this is obviously from God because talking to a rock doesn't normally do this striking something you could think well maybe it's because he hit the rock hard enough you know so there's a way in which he's not exhibiting faith in god a to um, give him the glory which we'll also talk about but then also to give himself the glory and kind of choose his own plan over god's plan so there's also this faithlessness he thought he knew how to act in the way that was best and then fourth, and i alluded to this just now but he didn't give God, the glory that he was due. And this is also what God tells him. He says, you do not, he said, you do not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Okay. So basically uh, this idea that he could have been shown that God could have been shown to be holy, which is a being that is totally different from us. That is much, much better and more glorious than we are. He says, you didn't uphold me as holy. So again, this is not to say that because of Moses' actions, God is either not holy or isn't shown to be holy. Because again, we read it in verse 13. It says, and through them, he showed himself holy. So he was able to do it anyway. That's a good lesson for us. But it's kind of like when you say, talk about upholding a law, like you didn't uphold the law. It doesn't mean there was anything wrong with the law. And it doesn't mean that the law is invalid if you don't uphold it by following it. But you do show a disdain for the law. You show a lack of respect for the law. The law is not seen for what it is when we do not uphold the law. And so I think that's what Moses' sin is here. He's not giving God the glory that he's due. He's not showing God to be holy as he actually is. So in a way, he is withholding something about God to the congregation because he didn't act in accordance with God's word. So when we look at that we look how, okay, yeah, he acted in anger. That's not good. Um, he didn't, you know, he kind of brought it back on himself as he was a provider of water. That, that's not really good. He showed a faithlessness in God. Oh, that's not good. And he didn't give God the glory that he was due. When we stack it up, um, there's a lot of these things in which, uh, in in effect, there's a lot of ways that this is a lot like idolatry, to make man the provider, the one who makes an idol, to show faithlessness in God by worshiping something else, by not God, giving God the glory He's due by worshiping something else. There are some ways in which there are some clear parallels between this and idolatry, at least in the heart that goes behind idolatry. So, and of course, idolatry being. Uh, one of the the chief sins against God. I think when we put it all together, we're able to see that this is a pretty serious offense and not just a minor offense. Um, it's kind of like, here's an example. If you were to tell a child, say a little boy, Moses, say, hey, go give your sister a bottle of water. She's really thirsty. And instead he yelled at her and he threw the bottle at her feet and walked away and said, you're welcome. I don't think that um, if you were the person who had been instructing that child, that you would feel very good about the way that they handled that, right? And that's effectively what has happened here. So unfortunately, Moses is not going to be allowed into the promised land. We're actually going to see that Aaron uh, dies at the end of this chapter. and It says the congregation mourns him for 30 days. We're going to see the death of Moses later, but both of them are forbidden from taking the assembly into the promised land. So there is this major punishment in which this land that they've been waiting for, they've been wandering in the desert with these people about um, because of their faithlessness, and now they themselves are not going to get to experience it. So as we decide how we can look at what happened to Moses and how we can apply, there's two things I think I want to focus on for our application today. The first one is that leadership comes with responsibility. Being in a position of influence and authority comes with responsibility. And you don't have to be in charge of the spiritual state of an entire nation like Moses was to be in a place of leadership and responsibility. So it's important too, for us to distinguish leadership in the world and leadership in scripture, because leadership in the Bible is not a status to be reached like it is in the world, in our culture, but instead leadership and positions of authority are a responsibility and not just a responsibility in general, but a responsibility to serve. In Matthew 20, 25 to 28, Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Being in a position of leadership and authority is not to be used for our own gain or even to as something to be attained for itself. But rather, leadership comes with this responsibility to serve one another, that the greatest among us would become A servant, just like when Jesus came, he came not to be served, but to serve. That is the same call that we have in all of the responsibilities and authorities we have, whether that be at work, whether that be in the home, over children, uh, in a volunteer organization and in a church. Uh, Regardless of where that leadership and authority is housed, we have this responsibility from Scripture to serve rather than to pursue leadership as an end in itself. And then the second thing, and this is something that is a repeated theme throughout scripture, and this is a great opportunity to mention it again, but God uses sinners for his glory. God uses people who act in rebellion and disobedience for his glory. Moses, just like everyone in scripture, anyone who's ever been used by God, he was a sinner. We saw it before God called him, and we saw it during the time God was calling him, and now even toward the end of his life with a great amount of faithfulness in his rear view mirror that he had accomplished on behalf of the people of Israel, he still was a sinner and God uses sinners in incredible ways. And that's one way that he shows his glory, that he can redeem people who, even though they are not bringing anything to the table, that he can make something wonderful out of them, that he can use even people stuck in sin like we are. He can use us for good in the world. So we shouldn't look at ourselves ever as not good enough to be used by God. We should never think, well, you know, my life's a mess. God couldn't be using me. I'll wait till I get my life a little cleaned up and then God will be ready to use me. If we're ready to confess uh, in, to, uh, to God, to uh, people in safe places, uh, the things that we're struggling with, the sin that we're dealing with, that's as close as we're going to get to be as close as we're going to be as being ready to be used by God. Because if we're waiting for ourselves to have only a palatable amount of sin in our lives, well, the only palatable amount of sin is zero. And none of us are going to be that way this side of heaven. So instead of thinking, if I have, you know, 10% sin in my life instead of 25%, then I'll be ready to be used by God. Rather, an opportunity to confess our sinfulness to be humbled before the Lord, before one another And to ask how God would use us even in the midst of that. Because whether it's a leadership position or a a position of authority or not, God is desiring to use all of his people and can use any and will use all to bring himself glory. So that's the other thing I want us to know, too, is that we are sinners just like Moses. And again, every biblical hero uh, that we've talked about, that we will talk about, everyone but Jesus had to be used by God in the midst of their sinfulness, and we're no different. And when we are willing to follow God even in the midst of our sin, to admit our frailties and still be used by God, we ultimately get to point the attention back to the person who deserves it, and that's God. <laughs>